everyone, welcome back to QSR Nation, your weekly source of food service marketing and business strategies for success. Here are your hosts, Josh, Beth, Tony, and Grant from the PFS Brands National Headquarters in Holt Summit, Missouri. Hey everybody, welcome back to QSR Nation. As always, we have Josh, Tony, Grant, and Beth here from the PFS Ranch National Headquarters in Holtzum, Missouri to talk about food service marketing and business strategies for success. Today, we're very honored to have Adrian Gostick on the line with us today. He is the author of over 15 books, including one released last spring called The Best Teams Win. So, uh, welcome to the podcast, Adrian. Hey, thanks, Josh. Thanks, everybody, for having me. Yeah, Welcome. Awesome. Glad to have you here. Yeah, we're pretty excited. Um, we've read, we've started to read the newest book. We've read The Levity Effect, and we really enjoyed it. So if you wouldn't mind, just kind of go in and tell us a little bit about your background and how you became, how you got to where you are today. Well, you bet. I, uh, you know, for 20 years now, my co-author, Chester Elton, and I, we've been researching and working with a lot of great organizations in food and beverage as well as uh, you know, manufacturing, finance, all sorts of great organizations around the world trying to move their employee engagement scores and working on their cultures. And one of the, one of the things that we were, as we found, as we've, we've done all this work, is the teams really vary depending on where you go. You know, you could be in, you know, the Cincinnati office and things are just running great. And, you know, you go down the street and the next, next branch, next location, next office just isn't clicking. So we knew that there's, there's differences, as we all know, between teams. And a lot of the difference, you know, is really in the, in the manager and how they lead. And when you look at the great books that have been written on teamwork, and there's lots of great books out there, you know, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team and, and uh, some great, great work by Richard Hackman of Harvard. Unfortunately, a lot of those books were written 20 years ago now. And time flies, and we forget that. So what we wanted to do is understand what great teams are doing differently today. You know, what's changed in the last decade or so? like millennials coming into the workplace, or we now have you know, gig employees, we now have remote employees, we have a speed of change that is unlike anything we've ever seen before, we have competition that's increasing, et cetera. So how do you manage people in this kind of environment, and how do you create great teams in this kind of world? So, so that's really how we got to where we are today. Well, you guys are doing a great job of it. I mean, I- it's it, this book. Like I said, I mean, we, earlier before we got the podcast started, um, just getting through the first uh, chapter even just makes you just want to learn more because it's just this crazy eye opening, and it also presents some great challenges. A hundred percent. And I mean, it's just uh, one of the things that really stood out to me was whenever you first opened up the book was about the story of Chris Hatfield and how inspirational that is. And it's something that you want to make sure that you do relate that to every single employee and member of your company just because of how inspirational and how motivational that can be. And it shows that genuine appreciation and just that empathetic nature that you want every single person to have within your company. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. You know, Chris Hatfield, for those of you who don't know, he's an astronaut. Um, was the commander of the International Space Station, and for six months ran an amazing team up there. They were not only, you know, had tremendous success with their, their scientific experiments, everything they were doing up there, but when we met Chris, one of the things he told us is that in six months, his team never had a single disagreement, never a single argument, which is pretty amazing considering most of us in our teams can't go a, can't go a day without arguing, let alone <laughs> months. Yeah, these guys share an office, and they argue all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I think that's right. But 
you know, this, this is sort of the epitome of today's modern team leader. And how did Chris do it? Well, he got to know his people. He moved to Russia for a while because a couple of his a couple of astronauts would be Russians, uh, the cosmonauts there. He moved to America for a while to learn, because he's a Canadian guy, he moved to America, he learned, uh, you know, how his American, uh, you know, uh, astronauts grew up. He learned Russian, he, he got to know their lives, they even role-played how they would help each other if, if they lost a loved one while they were in space, which actually did happen to one of the astronauts, but they were ready for it. Because by the time they launched themselves into space, they knew each other's backstories. They had each other's backs, and they were a solidified team. Yeah, that's that's definitely great. Um, that, that's a, a great story. Yeah. Um, I know, we, like I said, we've all started to dive into your the newest book, Best Teams Win. Um, it seems like it really covers the five disciplines of a of a great leader. Is that correct? Well, it does. One of the things we did, we said, look, there are a lot of good foundational books out there on on leading teams, and you know, we didn't go into things. Like other books we'll talk about, like, you know, you've got to build a trusting relationship. You've got to communicate with your people. What we tried to find were the five disciplines that are a little different than people, and sometimes counterintuitive. Um, for instance, one of the things we found as we, and now this is based on an 850,000 person study from every industry, from, you know, food and beverage to, to manufacturing, to healthcare, et cetera. And so one of the things we found is that in great teams today, um, they challenge everything. Now, that's not what we were trying to do 10 or 20 years ago. We, we followed the Deming world of we tried to create harmony in our teams. That's not what we're seeing anymore. We're looking for teams. Now, now it's not like every day you're arguing things out, but we're, we're really asking our people in these great teams to say, how can we be doing things better? How can we serve our customers in a more efficient manner? How can we make our products and our processes more efficient? And we, you know, the great teams that we've studied are always on the lookout for those great ideas, and they're not afraid sometimes to have discord in their teams. You know, it's unfortunately a lot of times as managers, if somebody is a little, you know, they, they want to swim against the current, you know, why are we doing this this way? We tend to push them out of our team. What we find with the great team leaders we've studied in this book is that they actually embrace those people. It's about inclusion. It's about listening to various voices. And, and we saw some tremendous success because of that. And that's a great point. And, you know, one of those things with having leadership and the inclusive, inclu inclusiveness that we're looking for, how does that reduce turnover in the workplace? And especially whenever you mentioned it earlier, um, with the different demographics that you have in all workplaces now, the Gen Xers, Millennials, all of those. Now, that's a, it's a great question because... When you think about younger employees today, and we're going to generalize, and, and millennials hate it when you generalize, <laughs> more, than, more than any group I've ever studied. And, and so with that said, there are still some things we can, we can say broad brush about this generation coming into the workplace now in their 20s. And one of the things that they really do hate is when their voices have been heard. They have grown up uh, feeling like, you know, in school they had... They had their voices heard. Where I grew up in school, you know, you sat there, you listened, you didn't really, you didn't really challenge anything. They've been encouraged to speak up. Um, you know, you look at successful organizations today that are breaking bounds, and and even though they've had challenges, you look at companies like Uber or Airbnb, and employees were actually encouraged to rate their customers. That's never happened before. And so we're, we're living with a generation that's growing or coming into the workplace that are used to having their voices heard. And then they come in and 
you know, we, we still, most managers run their organizations in a way where, look, I've been doing this a long time. I'll let you know if I, you know, if I need your opinion. But really, I'm never going to need your opinion. And <laughs> it's so demotivating to people. Yeah, that's a good point, Adrian. Um, and after reading the first chapter of your book, uh, you know, I haven't really seen any examples of drawbacks from good teamwork, and I'm not sure that there really is, but I was just curious if there's any examples that you have seen where the teamwork just didn't work out the way it planned to be. Yeah, and, you know, the idea is it's about, you know, group dynamics, of course. And, and there are times, of course, where, you know, we all kind of scratch our heads. You know, there are times where we send our best, best basketball player in the world to, to the Olympics and, and they get the bronze medal. You know, these guys should have crushed everybody by 50 points and, and what happened, or, or our best track athletes. You know, in the 4 by 100 relay, and all of a sudden they're not bringing home the gold, and we're all scratching our heads. Collectively, they are the most talented uh, athlete, but they don't work together. And so what we found, and this has been backed up by studies uh, from Amy Edmondson of Harvard, as well as Google found this, or not, a large study of their workplaces, is that people in the best teams have what we call psychological safety. They, they feel that they can be themselves with their, their teammates. They're vulnerable with each other. They speak up about the same amount during the day as everybody else. There's, there's not certain voices who dominate the conversation. They can throw out even crazy ideas, and they won't be, they won't be diminished. They won't, you know, they won't feel like they're, you know, uh, they're being embarrassed by throwing out crazy ideas because really when you think of innovation it's always a crazy idea that, that helps us innovate and break new ground so yeah there absolutely were lots of examples unfortunately of, of poor team performance and, and usually I mean sometimes it is the, it's, the, it's the players but often it's the manager who doesn't know how to break down these bonds and, and build up that psychological safety that the team needs you know, and that's a great point. I mean, whether it's, you know, a, a team leader, a manager, or even the CEO, um, you know, that that leadership position, that role is, is very, very key and vital. So what are a few simple steps that, I mean, if you're a leader, that you could do right now to help you know, create more of that teamwork in your business? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good kind of starting question is where do we begin with this? And, you know, one of the first things we got to understand is, in the past, one of the reasons that we just haven't seen any movement overall in employee engagement scores, even though we've all been worrying about trying to get our employees engaged for years, is that we've been doing it wrong. We've been worrying about the masses. We try to implement, you know, employee recognition programs, which are all good, but they're not specific to an individual. Or we try to implement, you know, pay for performance or all these other things. What we found is that, and I know this sounds like a kind of duh, but managing or working is a very individual experience. You know, I am going to have a very different motivators than, than you will, Tony, or you will, Josh, or, or Beth will, or Grant will. We're all going to be very, very different. And what we find is that the best managers we started studying get to know their people on a very individual basis. They get to know what motivates them. You know, I'm, for example, more driven by creativity and working more autonomously. Well, I have a fellow who works who ran sales with me. His number one motivator is friendship. Well, if my number one motivator is autonomy, um, who am I going to send to the, you know, the trade show to get the latest ideas and meet people and connect? Well, it's obviously going to be Lance who works for me versus 
myself. And yet we try to force people to all be the same. Look, you all be team players. Well, some people aren't. doesn't mean they can't be great employees for you. We have to figure out what drives our people. They're going to be more happy. This comes back to what Beth was asking earlier about retention. We're going to retain more people if we figure out what their specific drivers are. And I know it sounds like a little bit more work for us, but retention increases and engagement just goes to the roof when we figure out this idea. We call it managing to the one. Well, you know, I just get ready to bring up the point about that discipline. You mentioned to manage to the one in the book, and, and, and that that brought me to a part of the book we talked about. Um, you guys had a, a consultancy um, that found managers incorporate that soft side, the more inclusiveness um, in the leadership approach. To quote the book says, can increase their team's performance by as much as 30%. And that, that is just domination, you know, as far as being able to, to drive that you know, ability to increase productivity um, as well as, you know, getting the team to really, you know, feel like they're valued and they're actually, you know, producing something that is worthwhile and be fully bought in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's some pretty startling statistics up here, but, you know, I'm a bit of a cynic, so I kind of see a statistic and I go, yeah, but what about this or that? And that's why we put a lot of case studies in here, too. You know, you'll, you'll notice, you know, in the first chapter of the, there that, you know, we have Caterpillar in there, which, which you know, just has implemented this system throughout its you know, $47 billion company because, you know, and this is a tough-as-nails company, but they have found that managing in these softer ways can produce some tremendous benefits to the organization. Um, there's there's California Pizza Kitchen in that first chapter that's that's implemented a lot of these approaches. There's, there's Tesco from the United Kingdom, a big grocery chain. So what we didn't want to do is go into Google or or Apple or eBay and look at organizations like that. We've got a couple of those stories, but mostly they are about, you know, meat and potato organizations that have been around for a long time that just needed to take that next leap, and they found it through their people. Well, and you brought up Caterpillar. I mean, that, I mean, I think that the number quoted was that, uh, that one branch that they really took, you know, um, and, and, and rooted this whole, you know, soft skill approach and leadership in place. I mean, not only was it profitable, but it was a little north of $8 million profitable for that branch. I mean, exactly. That's, 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 that right there, if you're a, a hard skill set manager that just needs numbers, 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 <laughs> oh, that's a pretty big number. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people listening, maybe, you know, they're, they're wondering, too, how do I prove this out to my leadership? And what we usually do is we go in like a case, you know, like you would like an attorney going in and making a case. Look, here's what happened here. Here's what happened here. But, the, the, but we really don't believe it until we try it ourselves. And that's what Caterpillar did. They said, great, here's one, here's one factory. We have, you know, we have hundreds of, well, tens of thousands of employees. Now, try it out at one factory. And they did. And all of a sudden, as you say, an $8.8 million increase in, the, in revenue that year, you know, 70% increase in customer satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera. Then all of a sudden it becomes systemic because they realize this isn't just a nice thing to do for our people. This is really how we should be managing. Yeah, for sure. And it kind of goes goes back to managing the one, like you said. Um, I know here at PFS Brands, we recently took the Colby A and then what was the other one, the Clifton Gallup? The Gallup. Clifton, yeah. yeah, the, the Gallup Clifton Gallup strengths test. Um, just so we all know our strengths and weaknesses and kind of manage to the one like you were talking about earlier. And that, that's, and we have actually created, uh, the strengths test is awesome. Those personality tests are great. 
um, as we work with organizations, a lot of times they'll they'll have the one assessment they use, and it's almost like their holy grail. It is the only one true assessment. And we kind of go, you know, that's great, but there are a lot of other things that other sort of assessments can tell you. And the one thing we found that was missing with all the assessments was that really there was nothing to help people understand really what they were motivated by. We can tell you what you're strong at. We can tell you what your personality and how you'll react to situations. But there was no scientific assessment out there that helped you understand what your core motivators were. So, so we actually created about five years ago now an assessment called the Motivators Assessment. And this is, it was created by some psychologists. It took us years to develop. We tested it around the world. And now more than 60,000 people have taken this assessment. And it helps you understand really what motivates your work. And we found 23 different human drivers, everything from creativity to, to learning to excitement to money. Uh, and they're different. We're all very, very different. And so that's one of the things we have done and that we, we talk about in The Best Team Wins is we bring these ideas of these motivators in to help you really understand what drives your people in their work. Well, you know, and you, we've talked about how, you know, you, some of you really challenge everything. We talk about managing to the one and stuff. But, you know, that really, I, I think, talks speaks loudly to the creating the alignment, you know, around... Uh, serving, you know, not just you know, your customers, but your team ultimately um, to get that place, you know, there where they know, hey, this is what's motivating my team. These are their strengths. These are the things that matter to them. So, you know, how can I not necessarily profit from that, but how can I help them really be you know, the best them so we can be the best team? What is the most surpri- what's the most surprising number one factor that you found out in a lot of these motivation motivational tests? You know, a couple of things that were kind of surprising to us. Um, the first is that uh, while autonomy is, in fact, Dan Pink wrote a book about uh, drive, you know, why, human motivators. And he said autonomy is, is like the number one driver of human beings. And, and what we found is actually that is true for older workers as we get into our 40s, 50s, 60s. But what we found is absolutely not true for people in their 20s. It's actually one of the bottom motivators. And so we tend to think of all people as the same. Everybody's driven by autonomy, mm-hmm. when actually there are huge generational differences sometimes. And autonomy is one of them, where, again, we think, of, and I'm broad brushing, I know, but we think about millennials, and they've been brought up to work in teams. In, in school, everything was team-based. And all of a sudden, we bring them into the workplace, and we want you to work in the Toledo office by yourself, and we'll let you know how things are going. And... As one, one millennial I interviewed said, she said, autonomy. She said, that's terrifying. <laughs> and, and so we tend to think that everybody's the same. Another one was uh, recognition. So while recognition is one of the bottom motivators for people later in their careers and who are managing other people, it's one of the top motivators for people in their 20s. So again, a little bit of a disconnect. People earlier in their careers want to be recognized by their bosses. It, it affirms them. And yet, again, there's been lots of writing about intrinsic motivation. No, no, people are more intrinsically motivated. Well, they are later in their careers, but early in their careers, they need you, Mr. Boss or Miss Boss, to reward them and to recognize them and let them know how good they are doing, or they will leave you. It's that simple. Wow, yeah. Um, I was curious, where did like, financials and things like that come into play for motivators? Yeah, and what, what we find is that there is, and we thought there would be a big... More, a higher proportion of people younger 
who are motivated by money, and it's actually a smaller percent. About 11% of millennials have, have money as a top 7 out of 23 motivator. So they call it the top quadrant, just for argument's sake. So only 10, 11%, whereas 67% of millennials have like the, the term impact. They want to make an impact in the world. So two-thirds of millennials have impact as a top seven motivator out of 23, but only 11% have money as a top motivator. Now, it doesn't mean that money's not important. Money, we find with younger workers, is more of a threshold issue. So if you're not paying me enough to pay my student loans, pay my rent, get a car, I'm probably going to leave you. I'm probably going to move around. But if I pass that threshold, and if I'm making enough, and you're giving me things, the top three motivators for 20-year-olds were impact, learning, and family, which was fascinating. So if I have time for my family, my tribe, my friends, if I'm making an impact, if I'm learning and growing, there's a much greater probability that I will stay with you and do great work than if it's just about the money. But still going to pay me enough to keep me here. So it's a threshold issue and a satisfier more than a motivator. That's definitely fascinating for sure. Well, yeah. you know, especially, you know, you talk in the book about how, um, you know, again, speaking in generalities here, but, you know, millennials will move through a job faster, you know, about a year and a half, I believe is what was quoted, you know, right. and versus uh, someone old like me uh, who you <laughs> might stick around for, you know, five, six, seven years. Um, you know, do you think that that threshold, is, when we just talk about those things there, do you think that threshold is more imperative to helping build those those younger teams, those generational teams, or do you think that as something that, you know, as long as we're feeding the impact and make sure they have enough time to do what they want to do with their family and stuff, that money maybe, you know, is going to be less of an issue, just, you know, I mean, I know you just said that they'll, they'll probably leave you, but, I mean, if you feed those other three more, I mean, as someone, you know, who looks at the, the money-motivated side, is that something you think you can hold people in today's workforce with without the money side? Yeah, no, it is a good question because we do, you know, we're hearing a lot of different themes coming. When you look back to the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement, and a lot of us older folks think it was about, you know, younger people just feeling disenfranchised. They're mad at, mad at the world, but we didn't really know what. So as I interviewed a lot of younger people, for, for the book, what they said was, no, 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 you're not getting it. We, what we did was we entered the working world, and we found ourselves working for low wages, being ignored. We had no voice. We felt, we felt disenfranchised. We felt unimportant. And, you know, we were, we were sort of, you know, you know, kicking against the, you know, what we were finding. And so, so you know, the, the idea, the focus simply on, on compensation, you'll never win. There's always going to be somebody who will pay more. And that's why these ideas about you know, creating a learning organization, creating an organization where people understand the mission and the, how they're contributing to it in their specific way, making sure they have time off for their family. So the CEO of Bell Helicopter, and one of the people we interviewed for the book, told us, he said, we had a big project this last holiday season. And he says, I had you know, a group of people who needed to work on this big pitch and I said, look, guys, you have to work over the holidays, but I'm going to pay you this huge bonus January 1st if you, if you do this for me. And he says, my older workers to a person said, yeah, we'll do it. He says, my millennials to a person said no. 
I got I got family obligations. I'm doing stuff. I'm doing fun things with my friends. No thanks. And he says it was eye opening for me. He says I couldn't pay them enough to to do this. And so he says I realized we have to change the way we manage this gen- new generation. They're looking for different things than we were. Now, but you know, it's a good question though. Will they get to a different point when they have mortgages and kids and etc.? Yeah, perhaps. Generations and all of us do change, and not everybody is the same. So this is one little case, but our statistics are showing us there's some really interesting things here we shouldn't ignore as managers. Yeah, that's that's crazy, fascinating. We could talk about that all day. As yeah, well. that, anything to add? Tony? Well, I was just curious on the flip side of when you look at like the Gen Xers. You know, I mean, they they do have mortgages typically now. They do have kids. You know, I mean, and you said you know those, those two guys there. Um, you know, that took the money. I mean, what what about the value that you have to balance with them as well? You know, so that, I mean, I know you have to build your workforce for the future for sustainability, but at the same time, what, what do you what do you suggest that, you know, leaders look at to keep that, that balance there? Because, it's, I mean, not everything is going to suit everybody, obviously. There's not one size fits all. Right. And, and a lot of the worries sometimes, it's, a, it's an astute question because a lot of times, sometimes when people say, okay, now managers will tell me we're going to be pandering to our younger workers. And, uh, you know, but what we find is actually as we start doing a few things that will help our younger workers, it actually helps everybody. Because, again, younger workers are looking for more recognition, for instance. Well, nobody's going to be offended by you giving out more recognition. In fact, They'll, they'll be typically appreciative, even though it may not be one of their strongest motivators when they get a little older. Nobody, nobody minds being thanked. So as we start doing more of that as a leader, it actually helps all of our teams, even the Gen X and, and, the, and, the, uh, and the boomers. When you think of, we're gonna, okay, we're going to do more uh, directly relevant learning and career development for our people. Again, yes, it's going to help our millennials, but it's going to help all of our people. It's, it's a benefit to everybody to, to do that. If we think about that idea of impact, okay, we're going to more clearly articulate the meaning of our work. You know, why, what's our why here? Again, it's going to help everybody. So what we found is that as managers start looking at the leaders, start looking at these ideas to help their, their younger workers, it really helps everybody in their teams. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, Adrian, kind of to uh, keep us going along here so we're not here for three hours. We could be because this has been a fascinating <laughs> yes. conversation. Um, we're going to switch it over to three questions we ask every single people, every single person we interview. Um, so it's kind of like a lightning round, so to speak. It's, so um, we're going to get started. Okay, so Adrian, what is the one book that you would recommend to read and why? Okay, not one of mine, right? <laughs> hey, it could be. It could know? be, whichever one you feel. <laughs> No, no, we've talked enough about uh, my book. Um, you know, uh, we're actually just starting a new book right now with a fellow named Marshall Goldsmith, who's, who's a, you know, a wonderful leadership thinker. And he wrote a book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's a great book every leader should read. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, Adrian, and uh, real quick, I just want to give a shout-out to you, even um, just – uh, I've heard a lot of negative uh, descriptions of millennials, but that's the best one I've heard so far. So. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, no, we actually think millennials have a lot to bring to the workplace. But, you know, they know technology, they've got energy, they've got creativity. we got to learn how to, 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 to really capitalize on this amazing generation that is coming in. For sure. Um, so my, my question for you, um, 
What do you feel is a marketing or business trend we will see moving forward in 2019? Well, probably sticking with our, our theme here of people, uh, we are hearing much more about culture change. Um, you know, sometimes people ask me, oh, my gosh, you, you work with a lot of, must work with a lot of really diseased cultures that call you in. It's like, no, they never call me. What we do is we get called in by those good cultures who want to get better Improving. and and they want to get great. And so, but I'm, I'm hearing so much more. We're getting, we're getting asked to speak and, and help consult so much on culture because, you know, if you don't get the culture right, nothing really works right. And so you look at things that are happening when there's, when those embarrassing sort of situations that, you know, I mean, you know, thinking of USC or you know the, the medical school there, or, right. or 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 you know other things that kind of go on. When you look back, it's really we didn't create the culture we needed. When when we do, those things typically people who are not living up to those kind of you know things in our culture get pushed out. And so, really, culture I think is going to be, and people will be the movement of the next uh, next few years here. I agree. Well, I have one other question for you as well. So what is the one piece of advice that you would give any new entrepreneur? You know, this is, you know, you know we've, we've built, you know, several little businesses here. And, and uh, you know, I know this is, this is maybe a little silly little thing, but I've been trying to practice this lately, and it's assume positive intent. Because, you know, you know the other day I look on my website and, and something that was really important to me had dropped off. And, and so I, you know, I, I start talking with my assistant and I kind of go, hey, what the heck's going on here? You know, my, my rep guy, he's, he's trying to bring down a business. And we start kind of getting going. And you know how you do that? Yeah. And then I stopped. And I, and I remembered, you know, something we've been working on, you know, is to assume positive intent. So I said, okay, I'm just going to pick up the phone. I pick up my phone. I talk to my rep guy. He says, that, that happened? Really? And we start talking it through. And. Well, even if he had done it, for which he hadn't, it was a you know complete honest mistake. But even if he hadn't, again, he was still. I'm sure he would still be trying to make the business better. It wasn't something he was trying to do to bring me down. But as human beings, we tend to feel like that. We tend to think negative whenever anything happens. I'm the only one around here who can do anything right. I'm the only smart one. Is anybody? Da, da, da. We tend to think this. And I've been trying to teach myself, you know, instead of jumping to these kind of conclusions, to assume positive intent, pick up the phone, get to the bottom of things, you know, find out the facts, talk to others, and 99 times out of 100, you know, really there was no negative intent. We're all trying to do the right thing for the right reasons. So just that's one thing I would sort of help you with. I think it'll help you with your relationships with your people in your organization as well as your family members. Assume positive intent. That's, that's actually really great, great advice. Mindset. In fact, when you were talking about that, everyone in the room looked at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adrian, we've had a great conversation today. And if any of our listeners want to reach out to you, where can they get a hold of you at? Oh, it's really easy. TheCultureWorks.com or my website is AdrianGostick.com or, or pick up a copy of The Best Team Wins. And, and thank you so much, folks, for having me on. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you very much. We've had a great conversation. Yeah, we truly appreciate your time that you took away to interview with us today. Yeah, this has been awesome. And um, I tell you, if, if you haven't read any of Adrian's books, I uh, highly recommend um, this one. Of course, we talked about today, The Best Team Wins, uh, and an oldie but a fabulous one in The Levity Effect. Yeah, that book was funny. That book was, was really, really, really funny. Really good, yeah. You know, and uh, 
uh, it just it is it was awesome and uh, really really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, everyone. We'll we'll hopefully talk soon. Yeah, for sure. And for all of our listeners out today, for Josh, Beth, Tony, and Grant, and QSR Nation, we'll talk to you next week. Today's episode is brought to you by Champs Chicken. For deals, discounts, and updates, check out champschicken.com slash connect. Be sure to stop by next week for another episode of QSR Nation. And be sure to check us out online at pfsbrands.com forward slash podcast. Thank you.